Well, this morning we're continuing through the Gospel of John. Uh, I hope you enjoyed a little breath last week to really focus on our cultural moment. Uh, I have no idea what the cultural moment will be like at the point that you're hearing this. Um, Perhaps we'll still be in standby. Perhaps our country will have named uh, a president for the next four years. But one thing I do know is that this passage will speak to us regardless of those pieces, regardless of those. Uh, This is not journalism that's relevant one day and, and useless the next, but this is scripture. So join me in reading John chapter five, verses one through 18. So if you have a Bible in front of you, John chapter five, one through 18, uh, or pull out a phone. Here's how the passage begins. After this, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there in the Jerusalem by the sheep gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath, so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, and is it not lawful? It is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, "The man who he healed me, the man said to me, "Take up your bed and walk." They asked him, "Who is this man who said to you, "Take up your bed and walk?" Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, and there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Well, we start our story today immediately after uh, Jesus has left um, the healing of the official son, if you remember. And now he's traveling back to Jerusalem like a good Jewish religious man to the festivals, which Jesus always seems to show up for the festivals. He, he, He obeys the religious observances the commanded festivals and times of gathering, which aren't just like a a party carnival festival. These are times of intense 
intense, saturated worship, unlike anything we have. Maybe the closest thing we have to it is Easter, where there's a, a larger sense, or, or perhaps the, the span over the Easter holiday leading up to it, where we have in our minds throughout our day a sense of God and a particular defined way of seeing the world in light of that holiday, Christmas, another great example. But in the Jewish period, there were many such festivals. And so Jesus has come down to Jerusalem. And he's come down, not and, and we don't find him at the temple. We find him actually in this strange place, this pool full of people that are down and out. Full of people that we would call uh, dead weights. The actual English word invalid, if you parse that out and think about it, but it's, it's a negative in and valid. These are not valid people. These are people who are inoperative, null and void, missing their batteries. These are, these are people that society has thrown into a space and, and forgotten about them in their minds. An example of a modern day invalid for us could be a chronic hospital bed bound person, right? Somebody who just is in a nursing home for the rest of their life. Uh, it could be a, a jobless vagrant, almost an invisible person on the side of the road, expected to be there, a cliche to the point of not even seeing their humanity anymore. It could be somebody who's prohibitively obese and can't leave their house or can't move without help. It could be a shut-in, somebody who, who needs help to do everyday activities and is mostly inside and invisible to society. Here we have a man who for 38 years, for perhaps his whole life, or at least his whole adult life, into old age, is one such invisible, an invalid. And we have him dwelling in this place called the Pool of Bethesda, which is an interesting place. There's a lot to learn about this. John would have assumed that the people writing this about 90 AD uh, would have had some sense of the lore around this place, the stories around this place, what it meant to be there. And in fact, you will find in your Bible, I don't know of any other place where this is in the Bible. I know of another place where a whole story is excerpted, is pulled out. But here you have verse 3, and then look, verse 5. There's no verse 4 in your Bibles. So let's, let's dive in and let's grab that verse 4 that's been pulled out. And let's take a look at, like, what's going on here. Okay, so I'm pulling out my ESV study Bible, and they have a footnote where it says, Some manuscripts insert wholly or in part that in verse 4 it, it, would, it would read like this. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. Okay, so this verse has been pulled out. Why has it been removed? Well, if, if you do a little bit of research on this, what you'll find is that early... Uh, early scribes who were, who were taking and copying the Bible because before the printing press it had to all be done by hand, every single page written out. 
They put asterisks around these in the earliest manuscripts we have of John. And the, and the earliest manuscripts don't have this verse. And then later manuscripts have asterisks saying this is added material. It was added later. So it's been removed. It's been removed because we understand that John did not want us to actually believe that it was not true that, this, that in fact an angel was coming and stirring the water and healing people. But it was very much a believed truth. It was what we would call folklore. It was a sense that, that this is a real thing, this really happens. And John so much as references it later in verse 7 where he, the, the man responds and he says, Sir, I have no one to put me in the water when the water is, put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. Well, why would you put a, a, a lame guy in a pool when water is stirred up unless there's some belief that healing would come from it? So John's writers would have known this, but he removes verse 4. And why do I spend so much time dealing with this and delving on it? Because it's crucial to the story. It, it actually leads us and helps us understand what it is that, that where we go astray. Because we follow the same things and have the same issues. Michael Heiser writes for Bible Study Magazine. He says, he says, verse 7 mentions the stirring of the water, but does not mention the angel. It's likely that John knew of the belief about the waters, but chose to leave it out for a specific reason. Perhaps he does not wish to endorse that an angel was stirring the water. By excluding the popular belief about the angel, John focuses his readers on the healer who was indeed present, Jesus. So that's, John is coming up from this and he's saying, no, no, look, he goes, there are so many people that are so misdirected and misguided from the regurgitations and, and the slight perversions and the subtle changes to the truth of the gospel. And what they need to understand is the true healer is Jesus. Charles Spurgeon, when he talks about this setting, he puts it this way, and I think this is particularly powerful. He says, um, it must have felt like for Jesus... Any time he looks on the world at any point of time to see a place like this pool, to see a spiritually blind, lame, and paralyzed human race languishing. Languishing for what? Languishing, waiting, and these are my words, for the false hopes of superstitious healing. That we, in our desire for healing, have come to, be, have come to believe in wives' tales. We've come to believe in the culturally accepted wives' tales of what brings true happiness, but it doesn't. And true healing comes from Jesus. And so Spurgeon goes on, he says, This invalid was not seeking Jesus, but Jesus was seeking him, as is in the case with so many of us. See, for so many of us, the thing we are seeking will not bring us happiness. Jesus has to break in. He has to come and seek us. So what happens next? Verse 6. It says, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? And the sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And when I'm going, another steps in down before me. So notice the first question. Jesus' questions are so telling. Notice the first question he asks, do you want to be healed? And what does is is this invalid reply with? An excuse. 
right? That's what this is. It's an excuse. That in this moment, the, the man knows, like, of course he wants to be healed. But he has created a narrative of why it is that he's so broken and can never seem to get healed. And he does a few important things here. It's important when we look at the words said in the Bible to, to look at the intention behind them. What is being said, how it's being said, what are the things that are being said. Not just the words, but what actions are being done here. He says, sir, I have no one. So first, do you want to be healed? Well, sir, I can't be because I have no one to help me. So he blames the fact that he is alone on not being able to be healed. I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. He then cites his false belief that the water will heal him. And then he does one more example of an excuse of blaming somebody. And when I am going down, somebody else beats me to it. So there's a certain defensiveness in his tone. Actually, when Jesus comes and asks him, do you want to be healed? What does he do? He gets defensive. That there's some fear. There's fear in him. Where he says, I can't heal myself. You're hurting my pride, Jesus, because I've tried everything. Do I want to be healed? Of course I want to be healed. But you don't understand, I can't be healed. There's no possibility to heal me. And guess why? Because it's somebody else's fault. Because I've been abandoned. Because everybody else beats me to it. Because I can never win and the world says it's all about winning. But again, Jesus is pulling him to Jesus. He's pointing him to himself. He's pointing him away from his false dreams. See, this man, like us, is, lean, is, is looking towards his healing in like basically a lottery ticket. And it's not even true. It doesn't even heal. You can imagine all these people bumping down to the water together as the water is stirred by something. And so many toes and feet are going in at the same time. Nobody has any clue who even got in there first. So when nobody walks out healed, it doesn't mean that there was no healing that happened. It just means nobody has a clue where to look. And there's such a crowd of people. I could just see how this would be perpetuated, this belief. That maybe something happened wrong. Maybe it was just the wind and not an angel. There's always an excuse, but they hold on firm to their belief because it's so culturally embedded in them. And we have the exact same thing. We have the same culturally embedded concepts of what will heal us. Fame will heal us. Money will heal us. True love will heal us. Being beautiful will heal us. Having peace around us, having peace in the world will bring healing and happiness for us. You name it, we have made a false angel folklore. We have made a false Bethesda story. And we are pursuing it and we are lying and sometimes we are anguishing and we get defensive and we are shut down and we will eventually die waiting at the pool of that angel, waiting for it to come and stir the waters, waiting for us to win that worldly cultural lottery ticket. Because perhaps not very many people had been, been healed, but perhaps somebody did have some sense of miraculous healing and it was enough for everybody else to feel just like that. It works. You just have to stick with it. And our culture so gets that. We so have our own pools of Bethesda. And he says, I need help, but you don't understand. I don't get it. Why? Because I'm forgotten. 
and because other people are ruthless, because nobody helps me, because everybody else has their helpers that help them get to the water, but nobody helps me. Perhaps this man was totally alone. Perhaps his family had died or left him. And so we get a sense with this man of what it's like for us. Of course, I ask us to identify with somebody in every story. And in this case, I'm going to ask us, of course, to identify with the invalid. How are you like the invalid? And I want to say this. I want to go back again to chapter one that helps us read so much of this story. Remember when Jesus is talking to Nathaniel and he says, you will see the Son of Man ascending and descending. You will see, you will see that I am a bridge. You will see angels descending and ascending on the Son of Man, he says. That he explodes open heaven. That before him and without him, even during his existence and presence, without a recognition of him, we have a closed heaven. And in that closed heaven, we are looking at broken signposts to point to the truth. N.T. Wright says, John is full of, of truth spoken around culture's broken signposts. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean that in culture, we internally have some sense of what is broken. And that those things are actually signposts to Jesus. Wright argues this. He writes, he writes that every worldview must explain these seven signposts. They are indicators that are inherent to humanity. They are things that we know in our gut need to be true that cultures have sought insight and knowledge on the workings of, and here are the seven that he identifies. The seven signposts that are inherent in us, that we have an inherent desire for, are justice, spirituality, relationships, beauty, freedom, truth, power. That each worldview in culture, secular or religious, comes up with some explanation around these. Because they are broken things in the world and they need to create places, they need to create ways and meaning around them. Because they are unequivocally true things that are so inherently messed up that they need some outside explanation to come in. And Wright says that in the writings of John, John is particularly looking and identifying and showing these stories that point to these inherently known things and how broken they are. And the signpost that he has in every single one is that they are pointing to Jesus, that Jesus answers the true meaning of justice, that Jesus answers the true spirituality, the true meaning for relationships, the true sense of beauty, of freedom, of truth, and of power. But without that, we are in a closed heaven. Without that open heaven feeling, we are in a closed space. We are limited. In John's word, we are in the darkness. And so this man at the pool is languishing in the darkness of life. And Jesus breaks in to his life. Jesus breaks into a scene of injustice, a scene of sham spirituality, a scene of abandoned relationships. And he names at least three of these signposts. He at least is identifying a need and a desire for justice and fulfilling that for this man. He's at least explaining and assessing a desire for spirituality in this text and what he means for spirituality. 
And I think he's in some ways identifying the broken relationships that this man has and how Jesus is the fulfillment of a world full of broken relationships. In short, Jesus is showing in this passage, and John is articulating with the, the foresight he has with writing this gospel so much later than the other gospels, that he can say, Jesus, no, 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 Jesus is the cure for the things you're looking for in the world that are so broken. And today in Citizens Church in Portland, all of us are aware of the broken things. Do we see that Jesus is the cure for all of them? And are we willing to stick with that and follow and understand how? So when Jesus is saying to this man, do you want to be healed? Maybe he's saying, do you really want justice and fairness? Do you really yearn for answers? And in his response, interestingly, the man is showing him that his blindness is, is the only way that he can see right now. That he has no capacity to see Jesus as the answer. The only thing he can see in life is his own views of what should be his own answer. Sir, I need somebody to help me get into the water. Sir, everybody's beating me to it. These are the, this is the reality, Jesus. The reality is it's hopeless. It's hopeless. And Jesus is coming in to break that down. Now, I want to say this first. If, if you have some of those feelings of these broken signposts, if you are overcome with this, there is right thinking. That is a right starting place. That's a sense that you are in tune with what is broken in the world, that you see it as wrong. That's a good thing. Because that's the beginning to see that Jesus is key for that void, that he is the key that perfectly fits and unlocks that void that you're seeing in the world. It is right to be defeated by the visible things we see around us and see that we alone cannot solve it. That's right. It's right that without somebody to take us to the pool, we won't be healed. There is a profound spiritual truth that something outside of us, someone out of outside of us is needed for us to be whole and healed. Don't you see that? Do you see how these all add up? Perhaps you have had somebody like Jesus show up for you. You know what's interesting in this text? We know it's Jesus showing up, but we can actually find from this text that the invalid has no clue that this is Jesus. Here's a man who's completely kind of siloed from this. All over in this gospel, people have been kind of like crowds have assembled and Jesus' knowledge of Jesus has traveled before him, but not in this case. And perhaps in our cases, there's also times where we could identify either early in our faith or even recently where we're not identifying that it's Jesus yet, but we can identify that someone shows up in our life asking these questions. Somebody asked us to investigate whether we are content or want more. Somebody seems to kindly ask us, do you want not just healing, but true healing, soul healing, hope, restoration, recognition? You see, in our lives, perhaps we haven't identified Jesus as that person. But I bet you, you've had somebody walk into your life, either from this church that brought you in here in the first place, or perhaps in other places in your life, 
Perhaps you too, I hope, have been this person to somebody. You have been that somebody that they don't know yet is Jesus in spirit coming to them with the words of his spirit, asking them to see the brokenness of the world and see how those broken things are signposts that point to Jesus. So that's the beginning of this story is Jesus comes in with this big question and we all need to ask ourselves that same question. But then Jesus follows up with this this honestly bumbling and pretty dull excuse, this this expression of a very limited worldview that this man has, an unadventurous spirit, a sense of um, completely being shut down and broken and numb to the world. And he comes into him and again, he has a command for him. What's the command in verse 8? Jesus said to him, get up, take your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. So it's worth noting a few things. One, as we've seen other places, the word heals instantaneously. Instantaneously. In fact, we can't even tell in the text how it's exactly happening. Maybe, maybe this man's brain, as soon as he's given the instruction, as soon as the words have come in, out of his mouth, the former impossible things in his body are now possible. That the signals his brain was sending to his muscles, now they can move again. That he was healed in that moment. And so there is a moment where the man has a certain amount of obedience, where he just simply does it and it actually happens this time. Or perhaps there's this overwhelming sense in his body that change is happening and out of that change he then begins to move. We don't, we have no clue how this is happening. But what's interesting is there is no actual mention of belief or faith in this man. It doesn't say him because he had faith he was healed. No, it's a very pragmatic command followed by a very simple obedience. The word is spoken, the man is healed, the man obeys and takes up his bed and walks. And I think there's just a profoundly simple application we can make here, a profoundly simple thing we can understand, that following Jesus' clear commands, his word, even against our better judgment, which I'm willing to bet this man had given his attitude, even against our better judgment will yield healing results. Now, I really want you to get that. This is profoundly simple, but we all need to hear this. I need to hear this, that following Jesus' clear commands, following his word, even against our better judgment, will yield healing results. That is a true thing. But it's more complicated than that. It's a pragmatic command. It's a miraculous healing. But there's, there's two things happening at one time, and John's embracing this for the complexity of the story, that as he's saying this command, the command is simultaneously healing him, and it's asking him, it's commanding this man to break the Sabbath. Let's continue reading. Now that day was the Sabbath, verse 10. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. Like, duh. That's not okay to do in the Sabbath. I mean, literally this guy has been healed and he's literally just stood up by this pool and began to walk. Everybody in the right man would know he couldn't do that. And what's the first thing that the Jews crowd around and say? You're breaking the Sabbath rules. And in fact, this is exactly what Jesus intended. 
he intended to give a command that would both bring miraculous healing, but would also break the cultural laws, the religious structures built by man, not by God, and break the Sabbath. Well, what do I mean by that? You might say, John, I, don't, I still don't get it. Jesus asked this man to break the Sabbath. I thought the Sabbath was like in the Ten Commandments. That was a thing that God said we have to do. How would, this seems um, contradictory. Seems like he's idiosyncratic. He's not following his own rules. Well, we know actually that Jesus is a rule follower. In, in the sense of what God has ordained as the Jewish festivals. He's come down to Jerusalem just like he's supposed to. Jesus is an obedient Jew. And so then, even just in that most simple way, we have to then say, well, if Jesus is an obedient Jew and Jesus is God and Jesus is breaking the Sabbath, he's actually not breaking the Sabbath. If Jesus is asking somebody, Jesus would never ask somebody to break his commands. That wouldn't fit in the whole integrity of his person, of his deity. So just in that simple sense, we can know it's true, but there's also a lot more to it. The Sabbath law was built, William Barclay writes about this, and I won't go into all the details, but basically the Sabbath law was an exaggerated version of something that was given both by Jeremiah and again in Nehemiah. And Jeremiah said, Thus saith the Lord, Take heed for the sake of your lives, and do not bear a burden on the Sabbath day, or bring it in by the gates of Jerusalem. Do not carry a burden out of your houses on the Sabbath, or do any work, but keep the Sabbath day holy, as I commanded your fathers. So that's what Jeremiah says. And then I, I don't know if you remember in our series, but Nehemiah also had this piece about the Sabbath. And do you remember what, what it was about? He didn't want the trading back and forth on the Sabbath day, because actually that was, it wasn't just a commercial act. It was an act that showed loyalty and hope an advantage on something outside of Jesus, on something outside of God, sorry, of Yahweh. And so the, 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 the rabbis and the Pharisees of Jesus' day had ballooned this out of proportion, had ballooned this to the point where they had said that even if you were carrying, uh, Barclay puts it this way, they argued as to whether he could wear his artificial teeth, the rabbi could wear his artificial teeth or his wooden leg. They were quite clear that any kind of brooch could not be worn on Sabbath, a little clasp for a cloak. To them, all of this petty detail was a matter of life and death. And certainly this man was breaking the rabbinic law by carrying his bed on the Sabbath day. So to the Jews around this man, it's utter outrage. It's completely wrong. But they didn't realize that they were, they had false they had false structures set up. They had, they had ordained and cleansed things that were broken and dirty. And that they actually needed to question everything with the truth of Jesus. That in following the commands and the truths and the obedience of Jesus, we will be an inherently subversive force towards culture. I don't mean that in any partisan sense. I don't mean that in any particular camp or tribe or ideology. The, 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 the following of Jesus will be inherently subversive to all acts of culture that operate out of a worship and a goal focus and a healing structure that comes only from the visible and doesn't have a sense of Jesus as the answer to all signposts. Do you get what I'm saying there? Do you get that? That they will all be outraged by the subversive act of following Jesus, the invisible that underlies all the visible. And we know, of course, this rings true if we see the Bible as a continuous story and we saw all of the interconnections here. Where else does Jesus talk about things like this? Well, remember, he talks about, 
I am more important than your family. You may have to leave brother or sister or mother or father to follow me. Not because I want you to separate from your families, but because to follow me is a subversive act and other people will disagree with you. And sometimes you just have to let that go. He tells his disciples, dust, shake the dust off of your sandals. We have to be comfortable in sticking out in a courageous act of obedience because sometimes the act that will bring our healing is going to be culturally inappropriate. It will offend people. It will cause a stir. But that is where the true healing will begin. I wish we had a story where we had a man then that, that is like the model, model citizen of heaven. He's like the, good, he's like the Samaritan woman, excuse me, who, who as soon as she gets it, as soon as she really gets it, she just like runs out there on fire for Jesus. But instead, we get a, 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 a much more naturalistic, perhaps very real, perhaps very, very relatable thing. Here's what happens in verse 11. The invalid answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed didn't know who it was. For Jesus had withdrawn and there was a crowd in the place. There's some, there's some really interesting insights into the psyche of this man in the story. that I, I, I guys, I had to study this for a while. This is a difficult text. What is the attitude going on in this man? There's complexity. There's this, but there's a certain dullness of spirit. Frederick Bruner, a commentator who I've cited a number of times, calls this man the half-healed man. The half-healed man. I think he says that because clearly the man's totally physically healed. But spiritually, psychologically, there's something so totally still broken in him. That that part of him that blamed everyone for not taking him to the water and for beating him to it and was so woe is me is still completely intact. The navel-gazing, self-pity, I'm thinking my life is mostly images of me and how I'm going to get hurt or how I'm going to succeed. And I see in every interaction an outcome and how it affects me positively or negatively. That's this man. Is that you? I know that that's me sometimes. Where I'm not approaching a situation out of a sense of selflessness and generosity. But how do I look? How do I seem? What do I gain? What do I lose? Bruner calls that a half-healed person. That when we are so self-focused that we are actually living in the wrong attitude. He calls it a spiritual dullness. This self-centeredness. That this man is, there's a foolishness in his dullness and his passivity and kind of his laziness. Intellectual laziness and total lack of courage. That instead of standing up for the fact that the healing is more important. Guys, look, I'm healed. Like even something that simple. He simply is like, well, now that I'm good, now that my body's okay, I'm going to blame shift again. And I'm going to say, that, that, that guy told me to break the law, not me. Just get off my back. I'm finally well. I just want to go live my happy, limited life in a closed heaven full of its broken signposts. I just want to get on with it. I want to be happy with what I now have that I've always wanted. And in fact, he's missing so much more. That in fact, the injustices of life, this man has actually taken on in some sense as his own comfort blanket and he becomes unable to grow. 
the woe is me's, the complaints and the blames become a sort of comfort blanket and a sort of security. As long as he always has somebody to blame, he never has to grow and worry about himself. He never has to transform and do uncomfortable things. He never has to take risks. He can always blame someone else for every problem. This is a sickness of body that has infected and created a sickness of attitude. And I think so many of us can relate to that. So many of us are in a place where we have dealt with something for the proverbial 38 years and all hope has died. And even if that thing were to change, our, our spiritual souls are so infected and deadened that we may not be able to change out of it, that we may not be able to grow. Is your hope secure enough in Jesus that when you act in obedience to him, it has, or you know it will, and yet you will still do it anyways, you know it will sabotage your worldly hopes. That's the Christian life. Now, I'm not saying that inherently Jesus wants to sabotage and remove all good things from your life. I'm just saying, are you willing to act in ways that are clearly obedient to him when you know it will sabotage the worldly goals you have? When it won't fit your friendship model or your kid's um, perfect upbringing? Or it won't, ma- it won't match the vision you have of where you're supposed to be in 10 years? Or, or does the obedience to Jesus discourage you and cause you to change course like this man because deep down you desire stability and comfort over growth and positive change? I mean, there's, there's intense dramatic irony here because it's on Jesus that he is the ruiner of things, that he is the breaker of things, of these laws, of these of these realities that are present and supposedly good and orderly and right. When in fact, Jesus in the breaking is the one, very one, putting them together the right way. If Jesus can't break you, he can't put you together back in the right way. But since we can't see out of it, we, like this man, blame blame shift, we become passive and dull of spirit. And I think the tremendous warning here is that the physical healing itself is a misplaced goal. That when we read this story and we go, wow, Jesus is a healer. He's going to heal my life of all of the bad things that happen. That that physical healing, that that circumstantial healing is a misplaced goal. And that if we operate out of the self-centeredness of that, that even when Jesus brings us true miracles, and I have had so many true miracles happen in my life where I can say, that is only Jesus that that could happen, that that person could still love me after what I've done. And yet, not not but a year later, a half year later, maybe weeks, maybe days later, that I am again blame shifting, that I am again pointing fingers, that I am again saying, woe is me, instead of seeing that Jesus couldn't work miracles in my life, that I act as if those miracles had never even happened. Moving on to verse 14. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more. 
that nothing worse may happen to you. So we see here that Jesus is not going to let up. That in fact, either, even after this man has failed in some sense of a dullness of spirit, that Jesus is back at it. And he's here to improve and to encourage and to exhort him and say, no, you really need to tackle this dead soul. I'm here to, Jesus is always there to, feel, to, to heal primarily the spiritual, not the physical, the spiritual. And he says to him, he says, sin no more. He's emphatic. He says, out of your own attitude, change things. Some translations say, stop sinning. And we may even feel like Jesus is referring to what he immediately did as an all-knowing, omniscient God. He could see that this man had done these things right after. And he comes up to him and says, stop sinning. You just sinned again. Stop it. That he is after us. And I think there's an emphatic warning here for us at Citizens. I was thinking about this. I was praying about this. That we, even though the miraculous is happening in our life, we carry certain baggage and trauma and things that have happened to us oftentimes by other Christians. Whether leaders or in relationships, mostly in broken relationships or broken leadership. Or out, for some of us, in the wider public sphere of Christian faith looking out at the, the big mega churches and the things that are happening right now and the ways that people have staked their claims on worldly goals and worldly kings. And we take that as a reason to lessen our faith in the whole reality of Jesus. That that makes Christianity so uncool and so culturally inappropriate that we actually retreat back in and blame. We blame those people, but we don't lift Jesus up when we're doing it. No, we, we don't take the time to, to remove Jesus out of that and say, but it's not really Jesus. We just say, yeah, that's, that's so gross, man, these churches. And then it discourages us. It will discourage you when you start to think that that is, that that is in some way church. Or you say, well, if so many people are doing it. So many people are broken. What's the point of being a Christian anyways if that's what they all look like? You see how you're believing in to the lie. We do that at this church. And we have allowed that to influence the way we see Jesus, the person who's going to make all of those things right. And I get it. It is discouraging. It's super discouraging to have so much broken proclamation of Jesus, so much broken proclamation of Christianity. But look, the rabbis are right there as the healing happens. They are the broken Christians, so to speak, who are proclaiming the false gospel. And they're all around. So John's not, John, John the writer of this gospel is not adverse to that. He, he's not unaware of that. He would totally get what's happening this very morning in America. It wouldn't faze him a bit. He would actually say, I've seen that before. I wrote about it. And Jesus comes and he says, we need to recalibrate away from our sinful thinking. And that actually we need to set our will in opposition to sin. We need to set our total will, everything we're about, to eradicate that, to not believe any of that. That that kind of turning is what's called faith. That that kind of obedience 
is the beginning of faith. And it is soul healing. It's soul healing. So that shows us that faith in some ways is fundamentally an attitude change. Now, I can't tell you whether somebody has faith or not simply by their actions, but their actions show me a lot about them. And I can tell you what I think based on their actions. I can say their fruits don't exemplify a faithful person. We all know that inherently deep down. When, we, when you make those claims against those Christians that aren't acting like Christians should act, you're making that claim. But do you know what they should be acting like? Do you know what they should be known by? It's not by certain, necessarily certain social goals. I'm not saying it's not from them. I'm just saying it's not necessarily from them. It's from deeper individual character-based issues. To look at social goals and projects and, and, and things that a whole church is after to make change with, whether it's going out and helping the poor or racial injustice, those are all really good things, but you can follow them with a legalistic heart. But the people that actually operate out of a Jesus culture have the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, through 23 says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. There is no thing which can be taken from us or attacked in us or around us where we must give up these fruits. We can have and exemplify these fruits in all places at all times. So when you are threatened with something being taken away and you are tempted to act otherwise, you must realize that you are sinning as soon as you make that action and follow that temptation. Just prior to the fruits of the Spirit, Paul's talking about these. He says, now the works of the flesh are evidence, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, a divisive heart, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like this. He's saying all of these things that you say, I mean, some of those are pretty obvious, but a lot of them we harbor when we're after the, what we think is the right goal. We say, it's okay that I get into fits of anger and lose my temper because I'm after the right thing. Or it's okay that I'm divisive because I'm divisive for the right reasons. But how does that fit the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness? How does that fit in that? If we are acting in those negative ways to keep a good thing, we need to know that we are acting against God's will. It doesn't matter what we have to sacrifice or lose by letting go of it. We must change that character, that dull and passive, half-healed soul. And Jesus knows that sinning no more is the way that, that is the active way that we can work to change, to have our will aligned with his. It's the warning he must give us because he knows if you are sinning, you're clearly going astray and you need to be awakened to the fact that it is a sickness. And he says, you need to see that I am the only way that can be followed, that I am the truth, that you follow me above any worldly rule. 
that you follow my word as what sin is or is not. Do we do that? Or do we have prevalent senses of sinfulness that we've taken in from our upbringing or from what's, what's shouted at us, around us, of what's wrong, but we haven't actually gone to the Bible to see what is truly wrong? And what Jesus is doing here is he's saying, you need to see first and foremost that I am over all things. Jesus specifically has this sort of double entendre command. Get up, take up your bed and walk. Because he wants, he wants to throw a wrench in the broken system that will illuminate, that will seize everything up and everyone will see, oh, it still runs, but the only way the machine still runs is through Jesus. Every other way I look at it, it's broken, it can't be restored. It's only in the way of Jesus that any of this works. It's a recentering of our life on his glory, on his bigness. Remember in the story of Job, there's this concept in the story of Job about sin as sickness. I mean, some of you may be wrestling in this text with the fact that he says, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. There, there's some implication there that perhaps sinning is what brought on this man's um, sickness. But of course, of course, we know that that's not the case. That can be the case. It's possible that we can do sinful things that will bring on hurt and suffering to us. It's not beyond the realm of possibility. But it is not empirical that because you are sick, there must be some sin. That was, that was the problem with Job, remember, and his friends. They said, well, Job, I, you tell us you're righteous and we know you're a good guy from the outside, but there must be some secret sin we don't know about here. And that once you fix that, everything is going to get better for you. But that wasn't it. That what the cure for Job, just like the cure for this man on a soul level, was to see that having Jesus above everything else is the only way to be healed. So in a, in a way, when Jesus is saying, go and sin no more, he's saying again, do you want to be healed? If so, this is what you need to do. Do you want to be truly healed? You're half healed. Do you want to be truly healed? You need to see me as above every other source of information in your life, any other source of truth in your life. And the fruits of your actions should show that by the way that you begin to act and what you're willing to give up. That you are willing to stay faithful and gentle and soft and kind even when your life is ripped away from you. Because you are unwilling to be jealous and envious and have fits of anger and rage to keep what's yours. And then he propels the man to take it on and have some ownership over what that truth is. He says, you believe I'm above all and everything. Now you need to have some ownership over that. I need to see that you're living and taking some, that you see it the right way. This is essentially an ultimatum that Jesus is giving. Go and sin no more so nothing worse will happen to you. It almost sounds like a threat, but it's not. It's no more of a threat than, than telling you not to walk in traffic is a threat. Jesus says, see this. See this, that there is actually cars crossing the road at 160 miles an hour or whatever, and they're going to run into you. So when he says, go and sin no more that nothing worse than me... That's not a threat. That's sage wisdom. He's saying following me will bring you joy and peace and hope because I can see that there's these things just going to impale you and ruin you. 
but you can't see them. So listen and follow me in faith and trust. And I think there's a truth that as we are equipped in that way, slowly we will be able to see that the broken signposts will direct us. We do have an open heaven and we are seeing in the light into the darkness and we can discern better, but it doesn't happen overnight. And for most of us, we're nowhere close to that. We have so much exercise to do to have that grace of being able to see that on our own. But Jesus shows it to us regardless if we have the exercise or not. He shows us the truth in scripture. So what do we do about this? For our sake, practically, we need to know that this recognition of authority is the first step and the most important half of healing. And here are a few signs. I want to give you a few really practical signs if you have your notebooks out. There are signs that you are, that you are probably, I will never say that you are for sure because I don't want to be legalistic. But these are good signs that you are admitting authority of Jesus and believing in him. One is, of course, just simple, that there's a belief in Jesus, a belief in the gospel that Jesus did, in fact, really live, die, and was resurrected. That's not just a story. It's not just a nice fairy tale. It's not just a worldview. He really did it. A knowledge and knowing that he is one with God, because that's what comes out of that, and the Spirit and that he is merciful and good. Do you really believe that about Jesus? Is that an unwavering belief? Nothing can happen in your life that will possibly change that. Can you say, yes, I believe that? Secondly, belief in the word, that scripture is an authority above any other authority. That while our knowledge of science and psychology and secular morality and justice or love may overlap, may, like a Venn diagram, intersect with the Bible's articulation of it, that the Bible always wins in a knife fight. The Bible will always win in a knife fight over those rules. And that the Bible thus reforms us. Do you believe that? Third, are we repenting? Do we have a heart that seeks to identify our own sin and see that the devil takes joy in killing your soul? So when people point out that a car is coming at 60 for you, you thank them that you can get out of the way instead of being angry at them. Or even blaming. Or being self-piteous. Or getting defensive. 38 years this guy is an invalid. But for many of us, 38 years, there's a spiritual invalidity into us. There's a death. There's a spiritual sense of death. If those things are not intact, whether they were restored at one point or are now gone, we are again an invalid by the pool. And some of us, I can almost hear you now, I know I've talked to some of us that have come almost crying foul, almost as we've been tricked, as the miracle happens to us, as God has clearly shown up in our life, we call foul because we almost feel like we are blessed against our will and we are so mad at Jesus for healing us because of what will cost us to grow. But Jesus is teeing all of this up for this discussion. All miracles point to him and his superiority. All brokenness points to him and his superiority. That he is the key that fits that hole, that void. He's teeing that all up for here. Verse 15. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed them. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working till now and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father, making him equal with God. 
See, that's the problem that the world has. That's the problem that any, that any cultural structure devoid of Jesus culture has, is that you would believe a man who says he's equal with God, that's crazy. In fact, that's hostile to us. And there is the tension. Up until now, for this point, this Jesus is just a guy. But now there's some occurrence, and we don't know how it happens, that this, he actually knows that this man's name is Jesus that he is the source of true healing. And then John leaves this guy to the narrative. We don't know what happens with him. Like Nicodemus, he sort of walks out into the night and John focuses on what really matters. Jesus is better. Anything, I just want this simple advice for you. I've used this as sort of a, a repeated phrase and it's simple to remember. Anytime I'm suffering, anytime I feel hurt, anytime I feel wounded, anytime I don't get what I want, I say these words, Jesus is better. Anything, he's better. You name it. Think of something in your mind right now that you want, that you are pursuing, that you're hurt that you don't have. Jesus is better than that thing. But some of us, um, we're kind of groupies, tag-alongs. We've come in for the community, we've come in for the culture, but we haven't signed up for actually that list that I told you about. We haven't signed up for that true repentance and seeing him as a true authority. And this is essentially what we're like. We're like people that have come to a meeting because of the friends that invited us. And after, we listen to the nice talk. And afterwards, we go out and hang out with our friends again, but we never feel like we fully subscribe to it. We've never actually met the movement leader. We've never actually fallen in love with him and what he's about. Instead, we've just associated sort of secondhand with it. Or for some of us, the problem is that we actually have skipped chapter 1 and we're way down on chapter 10, if you know what I mean. We're getting out in the weeds and all sorts of stuff, but this belief piece is still missing. That at our core, we haven't grappled with this and said, I truly believe yet. And instead we're out in details. What if this? How does this work? I need to know the theology of this. Why does my Bible say this? And those are all good things to study. But the foundation of all of it is Jesus' simple words. Do you want to be healed? Go and sin no more. Follow me. See me as preeminent. So the last thing I want to say I've done a lot of diagnosis, hopefully, for us. I've done a lot, of, a lot of bringing us into the story and seeing how we're the invalid. But now I want us to put the hats on a little differently for a second. As people who profess belief in Christ, as a church who loves Jesus, who is saying, yes, John, I feel that those things are broken me, but I really do. I really do, and I really want it, and I'm ready, and I'm doing that. What happens? We then get to slip into the role and see how do I act like Jesus in the story? Not assuming we are Jesus, not taking anything for granted, but seeing what he does and seeing that now that we have the spirit in us as a church, we are called to do what he's doing. What is Jesus doing in this story? Jesus is befriending the friendless. And he's showing a path to healing only through him. Yes, does he bring physical healing? Yes, he does. I love that. Why? Because he wants soul healing. He attracts people so that he can bring them to his true eminence, to his true superiority. 
He doesn't get out in the weeds on that. He's very clear. He makes it very simple. William Barclay writes, he had no one to help him in, this, this invalid. Jesus was always the friend of the friendless and the helper to the man who had no earthly help. Jesus did not trouble to read the man a lecture on the useless superstition of waiting for the water to be moved. His desire was to help. And so he healed the man who had waited so long. But then, of course, what does he come back and do? He points him back to him. As he sees him sinning, he points him to Jesus later in the story. So many of us have a love and a desire and a good desire for physical healing in the world. Whether we're doctors, whether we're lawyers, whether, whether we are people that just have a heart for going out and really making change in COVID and 2020 has really illuminated that. I want to encourage that so deeply. But I want to make sure you are locking that in as a pathway to spiritual and soul healing. That your ultimate goal in all of that is for people to see Jesus. Because otherwise you will heal them only to have a, a death of spiritual suicide. That you are sort of assisting. I don't know if that's fair to go quite that far. But that you are, that you are not prioritizing the true. You are not diagnosing the true problem. And then in your goal you are then content with social renewal. Or personal rehabilitation. Because it's politically incorrect to talk about religion. Or that's not something you can do with that person. And so you've sort of justified a way you can hold that off. But the true goal here is soul healing. And are we willing to do that to the point where we will stand up, as I mentioned, to the Pharisees and the rabbis of the world taking ownership over it, over it, only using the fruit of the Spirit and letting everything else be dealt out by God? And I think that's really important. Sometimes we can become such warriors for things and such zealots for different ideas that, that we check all of the fruits of the Spirit at the door because the goal is so important. And we've so decided that's Jesus' goal is to do that. So I'm going to get it come hell or high water. No. The call here is, will we act like Jesus? The implicit story in this story is, will you also do what Jesus does here? As a church sent out. And it's only through the cross that anything lasting is healed. Why does Jesus heal us? Why is Jesus helping us? Why is this possible? Because he's the one that will go and die for us. If his sin and encouragement, or sorry, if his encouragement to sin no more is a mercy, how much more is his cross the ultimate mercy? The ultimate form of enemy love, which is Jesus' most challenging and radical social order to us. That those who would hate him and want him dead, that even you and me who would deny him, he dies for us. And that is enough, and that gives everything ultimate meaning. That there needs to be no further circumstantial, physical renewal in this world other than that. That all would know Jesus and his cross and him crucified and would follow him and be spiritually healed. Remember, Jesus could have come at this story and he could have come and healed all of the invalids. All of them if that was his goal in this world. But his goal was personal connection and healing. Person to person, one by one. Now, he has not left all those people in the pool in the dust. No, because by his death, he opened up salvation to all people who would believe. That the spiritual and real important healing is available to all of those people at that pool. 
if they would just profess faith in him, the one who died for him. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would begin to melt our hard hearts. I heard something this week. Uh, that you are, the, you are the sun who both melts the ice but also hardens the clay. God, help us be ice that is melted by you and not hardened and puffed up and put off by your hard commands. Help us to have such faith in heaven, such faith in your true reality, to see the goodness that it will bear now, but more so that it will bear, bear then. And prioritize it in a way that is so challenging. Help us to be people around each other who encourage that prioritization, that we make our life about the worship of you and not about the worship of goals and superstitions of this world that we think will bring good things. Help us to repent in Jesus' name.